Welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast, presented by Orion Advisor Solutions and hosted by Dr. Daniel Crosby, Orion's Chief Behavioral Officer and New York Times bestselling author. Each week, Dr. Crosby interviews a fascinating new guest on a range of compelling topics, from literature to psychology to financial wellness. To learn more about Dr. Crosby's behavioral finance work at Orion, visit www.orion.com. Hello and welcome to the Standard Deviations Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Daniel Crosby, and today I'm joined by Akhil Patel, who is the Director of Property Share Market Economics, an investment research service that teaches participants to remember the future. He became interested in researching investment cycles after his family's business went through difficulties in the early 90s and 2008, and has written a book, The Secret Wealth Advantage, that seeks to shine a light on such market cycles. He has two master's degrees in finance and public policy uh, and a degree in classics from Oxford. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's great to be here. I really enjoyed, really enjoyed the book. Took it on my, uh, took it on my family trip to California for a month. And uh, I, you know, it is a great book, but I'm sure my experience was elevated by the fact that I was reading it by the beach. I think that did get you some extra points. So <laughs> fantastic. Great book. Okay, so after the compliment, I have to start on a more adversarial note, my friend. <laughs> so one of the chap- <laughs> so one of one of the chapters in my book, The Laws of Wealth, is titled "Forecasting is for Weather People," and, and in that chapter, I sort of outline a significant body of research that that shows that most financial f- forecasts are, are more or less a coin flip. Uh, Once or twice in presentations, I think I've gone as far as saying that every Wall Street prognosticator uh, walked into the sea tomorrow, the average investor would be better off. And here you are, a financial forecaster, (laughs) here to talk about a book that that purports to sort of understand the economy in these, these 18 and a half year cycles. So with that somewhat hostile introduction out of the way, what convinces you? Because you're clearly a smart guy. You've read the research. What what convinces you that that we can forecast markets with any level of precision when lots of smart people have tried and failed? Well, Daniel, thank you very much for that first question. Um, I don't think it's quite as provocative as as you as you fear. So um, I'd say a couple of things to that. The first is I don't really regard myself as a as as a weatherman or a forecaster. And that's actually quite a good analogy because, you know, whether people, they tell you tomorrow or next week what the temperature is going to be, it's going to be 95 degrees or 75, and they're providing, you know, effectively point estimates. And then they give you some kind of inclination of how they see the trend in between, you know, the next sort of of two data points and so on. Um, I don't do any of that. So I don't tell you next year it's going to be 4% GDP or, or, or... price of Tesla will collapse to $50 or something. Um, I mean, I to a certain extent, I use technical analysis in some of my market analysis. So I do use price levels and so on, but it's not really what I do. What I do is I I use um, two things. One is my reading of some of the classical economists, Adam Smith and David Ricardo, to build what I think is a more comprehensive understanding of how the economic system works. Uh, and then I show through a reading of history that similar behaviors lead to similar outcomes, which is probably a statement that you, I think, would agree with uh, quite wholeheartedly. Um, and because that's the case, 
you can then make effective, for want of a better word, predictions of how the current sort of economic setup will evolve over the next few years. And there are many examples of people using that approach to make some pretty, pretty clear predictions of when the next crisis might be and and in even the timing of it. So, so I feel in in that sense, bringing kind of a historical perspective based upon, you know, um, I think sound understanding of economics uh, is maybe not quite the same thing as what your average Wall Street forecaster does. And I would agree with you that they probably could walk into the ocean and the world would be slightly better off from an investment perspective. Okay. So we're going off this sort of idea that that history rhymes and that there's behavior. It's, you know, I, I was nodding my head and that's not helpful on a podcast, but I was nodding my head, you know, when you were talking about how sort of behavior rhymes and, and behavior is, is similar from, from generation to generation. That's one of the reasons why I love studying it with respect to markets. It's about the only thing that thing that endures. You know, I, when I was reading the book, though, another thing that that sort of surprised me was the level of precision that you put on your your cycles, right? I'm not yeah. to say forecasts, but looking searching for a better word there. You, I believe you say eighteen point six years, sort of on average, is is how long it takes for these cycles to to come to fruition for us to work through a cycle. You know, when you look back on the history of market anomalies, right, there have been hundreds of market anomalies and sort of market truths that have been discovered. But one of the things that we find pretty predictably is that once they're discovered, unless there is a strong sort of behavioral thread that runs through them, that makes them difficult to implement, they tend to get arbitraged away, right? If you look at something like calendar effects or something, it's a big deal when it was discovered. But once the cat is out of the bag, like everyone can can sort of has access to that information and it's it's easy to arbitrage that to, to zero, something like value investing, which hasn't worked in a decade, but, you know, something like value investing is even if we know about it, it's sort of psychologically hard to do. So there's a reason to think that it would persist. So I guess two two questions here. Is there a behavioral thread that runs through the, the sort of cycles that you're talking about? Or do you fear that that by publishing this book, the sort of the, the information will get arbitraged away? I mean, I'd be delighted if enough people read it. <laughs> that might be even a remote possibility. Um, maybe your podcast will help with that. But I mean, on a more serious note, I think I think the point is, is that, that um, there isn't, enough of an understanding of how the system works and how, you know, I call it the economy's hidden cycle. The hidden factor in all of this is the land market and its importance to pretty much every economic transaction that takes place. Uh, And so without that understanding, and I give reasons why we don't really have that understanding or why it's sort of kind of hidden in chapter five of the book, you don't get market behavior that might take into account Uh, the cycle. And even if you did with one cohort of investors and decision makers, 18 years appears to be enough time for that cohort to have moved on or not be in in the same sort of decision-making position the next time around. And of course, the new new cohort probably doesn't believe that there's actually that much value in history. And even if they do, they might look at the kind of surrounding environment. So the generation now of AI and crypto and you know the green transition and 
smartphones and the global sort of economy. And they'll say, well, how can this possibly have got anything to do with how things were in the pre-smartphone era that we had at this point in the previous cycle? So I think given that that sort of, uh, for want of a better word, blindness, you get um, repeated behavior. Now, there's a second point that I want to make, which maybe might take us on a slight tangent, but that you know you do sort of see some of these arbitrage effects in the real estate market over time. So the cycle tends to begin at the center of a city or the center of a country, and that's where it tends to recover first. And I know we might go on into describing the cycle in, in a second. The property prices and, and real estate in that area kind of rise as you know, demand comes back in. And it then becomes a bit unaffordable for people wanting to buy. And so they move to adjacent areas and then adjacent areas and the process keeps going and the, the cycle ripples out, is, which is why it typically ends when you're getting quite speculative behavior in tertiary cities in, in, in countries rather than you know the center of Manhattan in, in New York, which will be relatively stable, overpriced, of course, but relatively stable throughout the process. So let's... It seems like a good time to to get into the model. I, I think that was an interesting insight about sort of every generation has to learn these lessons anew, right? So like every generation, right, they come in and out of power. Uh, they have to learn the same lessons the hard way. Uh, we're not learning the lessons of history, so we're doomed to repeat them. Let's let's get into the model itself. I'll, I'll ask you to sort of break down each of sort of the the four segments of it. But start at a high level first, if you would. The, the model is the intellectual skeleton for the entire book. I, I'm interested how you came across it. High level, what is it? And, and sort of why the primacy of the land market uh, in, in markets generally? Okay, good questions. Um, if, I, if I forget to answer one, just come back to it. So um, the basic thesis is that the economic cycle is 18 years or so in duration. I mean, there's a bit of variation, but it's not too too significant, it appears. Uh, it's been going on since at least 1800 in the US and the UK and so on. It, we, we can talk about these things in the US and UK most sort of knowledgeably because we have the data and also because both of those countries have undergone the least amount of political upheaval over that period of time. You know, Germany was unified and then split apart and, and unified again. So, and you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it tends to be that it cycle builds slowly for a few years after the start, and then you get a sort of major crescendo into a peak around 14 years after the start. This is where behavior has been most speculative, there's been most borrowing, most borrowing to invest and speculate. Banks are, banks are fully exposed to the cycle. Uh, the cycle you know, can't go on forever. No, no bubble, no mania can. And when it comes down, it brings down the entire banking system. That starves real businesses of credit, which leads to mass layoffs and unemployment and very significantly difficult conditions. Uh, and it takes a number of years for that sort of banking financial crisis to be sorted out and for things to be reset and the cycle to repeat. And it goes, it goes again, fourteen year, years up, uh, four years down. And then historical record suggests that in the middle of that 14-year expansion, you tend to get a mid-cycle recession, mid-cycle slowdown. Sometimes it's a recession, sometimes it's just a period of slow growth, um, uh, but it's usually very quickly uh, gone through uh, and sets up the second half of that 14-year expansion, which typically is more speculative. So let's 
let's uh, most recently, you know what? I'm going to save that for the end because I, you know, my mind goes exactly to where are we going to have you explain COVID? Yeah. But exactly. Yes. Yes. I thought that was coming. Um, actually, so I should probably say where I found this and, and why land is so important. Um, for sure. Yes. Um, so I didn't discover this. I'm actually building on some research of some pretty significant, might be very significant economists, but not very well known. So the first one probably to discover it was an American economist in Chicago in the 1930s by the name of Homer Hoyt, who did a, who did a, um, a PhD on how the development of land values in Chicago from the moment it was sort of a small village on the shores of Lake Michigan to this sort of major metropolis as it was by the end of the 1920s. And he found that um, for, for long periods of time, land was underpriced and then there'd be a major speculative boom and you know people were behaving as if that you know it, this you know this is this is how it should be this is because chicago is such a booming place uh, and then you have a major collapse uh, and the process would repeat and it happened for four successive cycles i think uh, by the time he was writing in the 1930s there was another american economist in missouri i believe called roy wenslick who arrived at the same conclusions he was a real estate man and they both were pretty successful in in forecasting how things would move out of the Great Depression and continue. It was a process that was interrupted by the Second World War. And of course, when your entire war, war sorry, economy is directed towards a war effort, you're not going to get normal economic behavior and therefore not the normal cycle. Um, and this is where an English economist comes into this into the scene. So in the 1970s, we had the major crisis, which a lot of people blamed on OPEC. And the oil shock, but which was fundamentally at, at its heart a real estate crisis, which then the OPEC oil shock overlaid on top of that. Um, and he rediscovered Hoyt and rediscovered that actually the cycle after sort of the 1940s and 50, 50s had started kind of around 55, 58. So it'd been interrupted. Then there was demobilization. There was in Europe reconstruction and so on. And the whole thing started off again in the late 50s. Uh, and in 1983, he published his book and said, by 1990, we'll have another major recession uh, and a crisis and, and so on. And that would be preceded by a major property real estate boom in the 80s. And that's exactly what happened. And so he rediscovered the cycle and found that it was now more of a global cycle because all of major countries in the world reset at the same time after the Second World War. And so what I've done is I've taken all of those insights um, and my friend Phil Anderson wrote a book called The Secret Life of Real Estate and Banking. And he documented the full history in the United States back to 1800. So I've taken the insights from history from all of those kind of for all that work. Um, and there are a few other economists and I've tried to sort of say, well, so what do we do with this information? How does it work? What should we be looking out for at each stage of the cycle? Uh, and if you can reliably say that certain things are going to repeat, what does that mean for investment and business decisions? And so that's that's kind of my contribution to this minor subgenre of, I don't know what you call it, economics, finance, uh, market analysis, uh, and so on. Um, and in it, I explain how each stage works. But in between those stages, I also say, here's why the cycle happens, why no one sees it, how money and banking fit in, I talk a little about modern portfolio theory and how you know the financial industry is maybe geared to kind of get you perhaps looking the wrong way at the wrong time in the cycle, etc. And so to answer your question about why land is so important, it's because it's the you know 
the most important factor of production. It's by far and away the largest asset market. Uh, a significant proportion of what's valued on the New York Stock Exchange is ultimately the property portfolio of all of these companies. We all need a piece of land either to buy or to rent, to to live and to work. Um, and land is fundamentally finite, particularly in the locations where people want to live and to work. And so it has monopoly pricing power. It underpins the collateral of the banking system. Uh, and so when it goes over the top in terms of, you know, during a boom, prices rise, that can get speculated upon. Um, as I said, the cycle moves out into smaller markets. Um, prices get bid up there. When you have a lot of confidence and a lot of asset prices are going up, you know, people have this sense that it's a new era. There's a lot of FOMO. People have seen that, you know, the things are going well. They want to jump in. They want to borrow to do so, and you have to, to to acquire real estate. And so the whole thing kind of gets sort of spread out, and it implicates the banking system uh, and so on. And underneath all of that is the land market. Mm. Yeah, I think that's maybe the most concise and powerful description of the of the importance of land I've ever heard. So, so thank you for that. I want to break down. I, what I really want to do is ask you where you're at and ask you what I should do. But I'm going to hold that. We're trying to we're trying to get people to engage here. We're gonna we're gonna start with recovery, right? I want to go through each of these four stages. Uh, tell us a little bit about recovery. What what sort of brings it about? What's going on in people's heads? And uh, yeah, talk talk us through that first stage, if you would. Yeah. So the recovery point is when you get the start and uh, and um, the move out of the prior crisis. And um, and I should say that I've tried to divide the cycle into four kind of acts, and then each of the acts into a number of different stages, um, nine in total. Um, and so the recovery, you've got a lot of fear. You've got a lot of people out of work and out of business and and pretty dark times and uh, and people thinking that actually that the world the world is in a really bad position it's really not a good time to be buying and in your book you you, you make this point at several places that this is actually probably the best time to be buying because you know things do always recover typical actions by central banks is kind of obviously to reduce interest rates as far as they can um the level they get to is different in different cycles and different market environments. There's usually very significant stimulus uh, by governments, firstly to bail out the banking system, but then also to to try and stimulate the economy through infrastructure and other things. Um, you often have a pretty significant change in political leadership or policy kind of ideas, partly because you've had the prior crisis and people think it's time for change. And that, that sort of generates a feeling that this is a start of a new new era um, and then the final thing that I point out um, in this in this stage of the cycle is it's often a new technology that kind of generates new businesses and generates new ideas and new practices and uh, and new behavior uh, and that powers the new cycle through um, so once the recovery is underway you then get a few years of expansion which takes us up to the mid-cycle and eventually you know people see that Real estate is rising again. Businesses are getting created. They're doing well again. Stock stock market is 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 doing well. People are starting to recover their losses or they're making some money by now. Um, and then you get the possibility that actually, for in a in a fairly small way relative to how where we'll get to at the end of the cycle, things are going a bit over the top. 
So stock markets and all-time highs, value investors start talking about how overpriced everything is uh, and so on. You get a bit of a construction boom in certain areas and uh, some frothy behavior, shall we say, uh, towards the end of the first stage in the cycle. Okay. So this you 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 delved into it a little bit the mid the mid cycle piece there that's um what this new technology is like bringing us you know from recovery into mid cycle is that right yeah well, it leads the way so there's a reason why the Nasdaq tends to bottom first in the prior crash and is already appreciating when you know the broader market is still coming down and you're starting to hear about new business models and. There's something new about it, uh, and that you know, then that requires investment in new things, um, etc. So that's how it takes us. I mean, obviously, the rest of the economy follows suit, and uh, as you get growth again, and people are wealthier again, and spending more money after the prior crisis, you get an expansion, and it can actually be quite robust. But there's always a sort of there's always a sort of overhang of uh, the prior crisis, you know, and then sometimes particularly when you have a sort of a negative development, people think, oh no, we're going to have another set of banking failures or crises and uh, another recession. So there's an element of fear still around. So yeah, just just to play on the investor psychology piece in the mid-cycle, you're coming out of, you know, you're coming out of crisis, then recovery. I guess you start with recovery in your model, right? But you had a crisis, then a recovery. You're into the mid-cycle is there broad recognition that things are getting better or are people still have sort of have their brains broken by, by what? <laughs> um, well, so, okay. So once you've had a few years of the expansion, which is in the recoveries act of the cycle, you get the mid cycle, which tends to be a slowdown. So there is a bit of a pullback hmm. for whatever reason, you know, people have done a bit too much. They've bought too much inventories a bit too high. There's been a bit too much sort of speculation is not probably the right word, but you know, and, and there is a bit of a uh, pullback and then maybe some people start to sell, they panic a bit. Now, what tends to happen is governments are pretty active in terms of stimulus and lowering interest rates because they clearly remember what happened last time and they want to stay in power and so on. They remember the prior crisis, I should say. But also you've not had a major uh, speculative boom up to the mid-cycle, which has involved a lot of bank lending and you know crazy credit creation for lots of being projects that are not worth it and, and so on. And so the banking system tends to hold up. Uh, and that sort of, because you don't have a major banking panic, the amount of fear is, I think, quite contained. I mean, it, the mid-cycle can have often associated with it a fairly significant event, which maybe makes things worse. But it's not it's not the kind of total despair that you get during a banking crisis, because in that moment, no one's buying anything and you can't borrow money from the bank really and um, the news is really negative and you're hearing about all these scandals coming out and, and so on. You you, you have that at a much smaller scale uh, at the mid-cycle. Um, and But what it does do, I think, is in people's minds, it it's a problem that we get through relatively quickly and it sort of, in some ways, psychologically, almost erases the full memory of the prior crisis you know, every time you're looking back to problems, you're then looking back to the mid-cycle and um, and you'll see you're taking a different set of lessons from that, and from that than we did at the end of the prior crisis, if you see what I mean. So it's almost, 
And in some ways, almost the worse the mid-cycle, the more effectively it erases the knowledge and memory of the prior crisis. And so it, in some ways, uh, exacerbates the feeling that we're in a different era. Yeah, it's it's fascinating to me how quickly people lose their sense of history. And I mean, if you had to talk about the psychological variable that predicts more market behavior than just about anything, for me, it's the tendency of investors to project the recent past into the future sort of indefinitely, to assume yeah. that like the way things have been is the way things will always be uh, when we know in markets that almost the opposite is true, right? I mean, so this sort of this sort of recency bias and continuity and thinking bias leads us, of course, to the boom, which gets all the headlines, right? The boom is yeah. what we study. But talk to us about the psychology of the boom. What's going on during this this boom time? So I think it starts with some fair, fairly um, optimistic behavior, that, not quite euphoria and. I don't know what the word is for losing your head, <laughs> but in a good way, sort of thing. Um, so, so you get through the mid-cycle kind of stimulus and 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 um, loose monetary policy works. There's often um, a, a dominant industry that is now starting to really generate interest, and that's where all the investment is going, and and so on. I mean, it's not always just one thing, but often in historical episodes that I go through in the book. Uh, you can see in hindsight that there is probably something dominant dominating. You get new kind of again, you get, as you had with the first half of the cycle. There's a new way of doing things. It's a new feeling builds that this is a different era. Uh, we have to radically rethink our economic model, and that's exciting. There's lots of opportunities and other things. There's a lot of demand for for houses and and real estate, partly because the economy is shifting and people are locating in new areas. And so and there's a bit of a construction boom that drives demand for raw materials and other things. So there's a bit of a mining boom, et cetera. So it all builds on itself. And when you've had a few years of this, you tend to find um, that kind of psychology flips from optimism to kind of outright euphoria. It's sort of, as you say, the, the projecting the recent past into the future is, well, it's things are changing, things are building, lots of, you know, Markets are all-time highs. Most investors are in profit, uh, etc. Uh, and you feel that this is going to go on forever because it's justified by the fact that it is a different era, etc. Um, different need to value things and uh, and so on. And that just feeds in on itself um, for typically a couple of years. I I call that part of the the boom phase, the phase, the mania. Um, uh, and I try and illustrate it with, for example, um, the mania in particular with 1980s Japan, which is probably the most famous mania of them all. I think you cite the example of the land market in Tokyo being worth several times more than the entire uh, United States. Is that sort of... Uh, and But, you know, at the time, it seemed totally justified. You know, Japanese companies were much better than other companies in the world. Uh, Japanese banks were doing more lending. Uh, Japanese businesses were buying up huge swathes of California and Hawaii and New York. And uh, it seemed like no one could stop it. People thought that the Japanese economy would one day be bigger than the American one, uh, et cetera. So it was all justified that the Nikkei was approaching 40,000 and the value of Tokyo real estate was where it was, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, these things never last for very long. Uh, and then when yeah. I come down, they bring down the entire banking system. 
Well, well, let's talk about the crashing down now. The the final stage is crisis, and now we're going to get to the part that I've been been dying for. Use <laughs> use crisis if you would start with the great financial crisis, right? Start with how's the, the real estate crisis of, uh, you know, call it 07, 08, I guess, so 07 to March of 09. Start with that if you would. And kind of walk us through, because I, I think you, you've done a, a, a wonderful job of sort of breaking this out, codifying these cycles into these little subcomponents that I think are easy to understand. But I don't think there's any, um, I don't think there's any substitute for sort of laying it on top of what's actually gone down. So if you would start with the real estate crisis of like 07, 08 and kind of walk us through the, how, it's, how it's laid on top of history in these last few years. Yeah. So prior to the peak of the cycle, so this is year 14, you've had the, you know, 14 years up, you've had the mid cycle, you've had the boom, you've had the mania, you know, and you, the mania last time around was sort of the period of around 04, 06, right? When everyone was sort of flipping properties in Florida within six months and you had this sort of major boom in, in the Dow Jones and the S&P and uh, around the world, you know, people, Ireland, I think was building seven years worth of housing, uh, et cetera. All at once, you know. So you get, you get at some point right at the peak, you get a, a moment where people are no longer able to bid up house prices any longer, uh, and sellers are not willing to to reduce prices. So you get a dull phase in the site in the sort of real estate market, and then eventually things start to fall because foreclosures increase because some banks can't, sorry, sorry, some construction companies can't honor their loans and so on, and and so you get a bit of a a few warning signs, and this was probably around February of 07, when a f the first few kind of funds that were exposed to subprime real estate in California started to talk about problems. And by this point, actually, and I, I made this point in the book, by this moment in the cycle, um, house building stocks are already starting to go down because analysts are no longer seeing uh, increased um, growth and margins at the same level as they have seen before. So while the broader market is still going into new all-time highs, the house building stocks and other real estate stocks are starting to come off. And that is and that's as good a warning sign uh, of the peak of the cycle as you're ever going to get. So you get some warning signs, you know, people are not sort of honoring their loans, which are linked to real estate. Prices start to come down. Some people default on their loans to the bank. You start to get a few banking issues. Banks start to be a little less free with credit. Some behavior is predicated upon the easy flow of credit. So sometimes you have a bank approaching the money markets for emergency liquidity. Money markets think, what's going on here? And then they start to freeze up. And so you got to get a chain reaction of things. And ultimately, at some point, you get a full-blown start in the banking crisis. And then the authorities can be quick to react or they can take a while. Usually they don't want to kind of create any moral hazard situation so they try and contain it to one area and then it breaks out into the open in another area. And the upshot of all of this is that credit for, for normal businesses is severely curtailed and that leads to a lot of businesses starting to fail, leads to a lot of unemployment. It's particularly bad in the small and medium-sized business part of the, of the market and they do most of the employing of the labor force in the country. So that wipes out demand from the economy and you get sort of full-blown panic, business failures, et cetera, et cetera. All of that happened kind of 
from around the end of 2007 to, well, it went through to the, so the S&P had a low in 2009, but you were still having some major issues uh, in the US economy throughout 2009, I think even into early 2010. So it's usually several year process from the peak to the to the really worst part of it. At some point, the the government is going to go in and do a full blown unlimited, you know, whoever needs it kind of liquidity facility, not just for problems in the subprime market, but for any kind of problems. Uh, and that starts to return confidence to the banking sector. Then the government pulls out its standard bag of tricks in terms of uh, trying to reflate the economy and restore the banking system. So it forces some banks to merge, takes over other banks, takes toxic loans off uh, balance sheets, uh, uh, depends on you know what the policy flavor is at that moment. And that at some point starts to restore confidence to the banking system, system so that banks can start relending. And it's that moment when that is starting to happen again that you get the start of the next cycle. So if 2007 to 2009-10 was the sort of the crisis phase of the last couple of years, where are we now, right? Because I mean, we're we're coming up on, we're what, 17 what are, what is it? Sixteen years deep now. Where does that put us now? And where would COVID sort of overlap with all of this? Because we had a crisis, you know, we had a crisis in two thousand seven. We had another crisis in twenty twenty. Yeah, wait, where are we now? Yeah, so the start of the current cycle was around twenty eleven, probably. You know, usually there's something that kind of almost signifies the end of the cycle. Um, not necessarily its deepest point, but we're now moving on to the next one. And I think really, for me, the the um, Eurozone crisis, so you had this sort of thing which starts in the US and reverberated around the rest of the world. I think the Eurozone crisis in the second half of 2000 level was for me, 2011, sorry, uh, was for me the final, almost the final hurrah of the previous cycle and the crisis. You could argue maybe 2012 when Mario Draghi, who was then the president of the European Central Bank, said he would do whatever it took to save the euro. Uh, I think markets really didn't look back after that point. Until that point, you know, there was a bit of a, even though the 2009 was a low, there was a pretty significant sell-off in the summer of 2011, mm -hmm. a bit of a sell-off in 2012. But that no, I think, was the moment at which it was sort of definitively the start of the new one. So this is... Seven years in, you typically get a evidence that we're approaching the mid-cycle. So global PMIs and, and trade data and so on were definitely slowing in, in 2019. I'd say that's kind of around the start of the mid-cycle. Yield curve inverted, signify, signifying a, a slowdown. Um, you often get some kind of grand pronouncement at the top of the, at the, at the sort of mid-cycle peak, as you do at the peak of the full cycle. You had... Uh, um, the great and the good at Davos, you know, Ray Dalio talking about how the business cycle, as we know, it was over, or maybe it's his CFO, Trump talking about how, um, you know, the US was in a boom like the world has never seen now, allowing for a bit of hyperbole um, from him because he's, he, you know, he likes these big statements. These are sort of almost, in some ways, psychological indicators that actually this is the peak of the market. And then overlaying that slowing economy was then the COVID pandemic. And I think that's had a couple of sort of effects. It, well, it actually probably made people think that is the crisis, but I, it, 
things were slowing down before that. But more importantly, what might have been a more measured stimulus out of a slowing economy became, you know, some of the largest stimulus bills across the globe in history. Uh, and actually, the US experienced the shortest recession in its history, so four months officially. Um, and that uh, now there are some artificial elements to how things progressed out of the out of the mid cycle into the start of the boom, but you certainly didn't have a major banking crisis. Um, and you had a resumption of confidence, I think, sort of fairly quickly uh, in the sort of late 2020, early 2021. Um, it's been somewhat damaged, I think, by what's happened with Ukraine and then the sort of uh, the effects of China not reopening and other things. But haven't you noticed that we were nailed on to have certainty to have a recession at the start of 2023 and suddenly it's much lower reduction or it's so much lower chance of it. And uh, in fact, the US economy is growing and uh, we, we, we're having sort of uh, some major boom in in real estate construction, even though mortgage rates are high. So in other words, in the boom phase of the cycle, the surprise is always to the upside um, mm. because, you know, the conditions are right for people to, you know, want to move to new areas for a lot of building companies to want to supply that demand for banks to be willing to lend. And in fact, interest rates being high has been quite good because it's made them very profitable. You know, new industries are rising, new investment needs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we've seen all of that uh, over the last 12 months, despite the fact that the geopolitical macroeconomic um, backdrop has been um, somewhat difficult. So you see this today as part of the sort of the early phases of the boom boom phase of the cycle. It's starting to mature now. You're starting to see some pretty... So so one of the indicators of the boom um, is that people start to announce these really grand mega projects and yeah. really tall buildings and the world's tallest building is often a very good indication of the peak of the cycle approaching when that's announced. Uh, and so you're seeing this massive construction boom in the Middle East. Uh, but even in, in, in the US, you're starting to see announcements of the world's tallest or the US the American tallest residential tower and and so on and some pretty big projects going on. Um, you're starting to see some pretty kind of silly behavior in some ways. Um, uh, you know, everyone buying luxury items and and displaying it. I mean, you don't you never get this sort of behavior in in at the start of the cycle or during the crisis. You know, it's just not the time. It's there's a lot more confidence. People are still spending a lot of money. Um, in fact. One of the reasons why inflation has been so bad, and in fact, been higher for longer than people uh, have expected, is despite the fact that prices are going up, people are still willing to pay. Maybe that's a function of really high savings during the pandemic, uh, but it's also, I think, a function of um, less pessimism than you would expect given the um, very significant adjustments that have been made with interest rates and so on. Uh, so, yeah, we are starting to see some quite frothy stuff, but I think the next couple of years will be really, really in that sense, quite emotional. So with with that in mind, is this the kind of, you know, understanding this cycle, you got in this to understand your, your family business, understanding this cycle, is it is it investable? I mean, is this just sort of an expectation management thing or, or is is this the sort of thing where you say, well, hey, knowing where we are in the cycle, you should do this and not that. Can you make concrete investment sort of 
recommendations uh, based on this cycle? I certainly hope so because I, I each uh, the end of each chapter <laughs> um, contains a section called the Handbook of Wealth Secrets, and I in fact detail what investors should do with the information presented in that chapter. And so I say, you know, when everyone is really fearful, this is the best time to be investing. I'm sure something that you would uh, agree with. You know, technology leads the cycle, as, as we've discussed. Um, as you approach the mid-cycle a few years in, start to build up cash reserves. Don't pile in at high prices. Um, don't panic during the mid-cycle recession when markets come down. Um, you know, ride it out. It'll turn around soon enough. Real estate and, and banking and other things tend to be good investments in the second half of the cycle because that's consistent with what's going on, commodities as well. Um, please use the last two years of the boom to to kind of sell the assets you want to at a high price, you know, start to put stuff in safe havens, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, I think there is there is a particular rhythm to investing behavior that you can you can follow. Um, you know. Within your own style, whatever's comfortable to you, given your own sort of investment horizons, given your own sort of uh, preferences, etc. Um, I think it is practical, and I think even if you were to do nothing other than just wait for the start of uh, the start point of the cycle, and put all your sort of savings into an S and P tracker, and then sell somewhat close to the top, it doesn't have to be at the top. It, if you miss the top slightly, it doesn't matter if it's You'll you'll do you do fine. I mean, in that that's all you need to do. And if you do go through the crisis, and markets have come down fifty percent, which is the medium medium fall at the end of the cycle, then don't use that point to sell. <laughs> that really, you know, things will will turn around. I mean, there are a number of areas in which uh, I've, I'd hope you could use the cycle both to invest, but also to manage your emotions through it. And I've also tried to give. Um, some pointers on that of course in nothing like the detail that you do in your various writings but um i've actually sort of built on not built on i try to use some of your work to to kind of provide some useful pointers on that yeah thank you well the last question this is purely this is purely selfish because i'll be i'll be upfront about something i got very wrong when covid was first starting i said to my wife you know whatever April of 2020. Yeah. Like, wow, let's let's save a little money, right? Like, let's keep some cash on the sidelines because there's about to be incredible real estate deals. You know, I'm like, there's we're going to be able to get real estate for a song here in a minute. And boy, was I wrong. <laughs> like, it went... It went the exact opposite way that I thought it was going to go. And look, I'm no real estate expert like you. How are we to understand the impact of COVID on real estate prices? I mean, here in the US, I mean, it effectively, in a lot of places, I mean, my home value doubled in two years or something after years of being relatively stagnant. How are we to understand the impact of, of sort of COVID on real estate prices? And does the 18-year cycle have anything to say about that? Yeah, I mean, so it immediately told you, and if you take the 18-year perspective, it immediately told you that the COVID crisis wouldn't lead to a very significant fall in real estate prices. 
I mean, I didn't know that things would rebound quite so quickly, but then I didn't really predict how much stimulus would be applied in such a short space of time. So, so the doubling within two years, probably in other real estate cycles, you might get a doubling over, say, four years or three years or something. You know, so prices have come down a little bit in about the middle of 2022 to the, I think, February in the US in, in 2023. And you might have got, without the COVID stimulus being quite so large, you might have come, might have ended up in the same place, but getting to it through a slightly less turbulent route than we have, i.e. some shooting up and then coming down a bit. Um, so I think the cycle would have led you to expect not to, to not to feel there's going to be a crash in, in 2020. And in fact, I said that to a lot of my subscribers, you know, stay the course. The other thing that um, the cycle will tell you, and it's often for different reasons, is that you tend to find that the first half of the cycle, it's stronger at the center, it's stronger in the bigger cities. And in the second half of the cycle, it's stronger in secondary and tertiary cities. And so while you know, people relocating for COVID-related reasons, i.e. they wanted a bigger back garden and they wanted to be away from large centers of population. In previous cycles, it's often because they're priced out of um, primary cities and they go to secondary and tertiary ones and so do companies, etc. Uh, and so you're seeing the same dynamic that you that's played out previously. And what happens in those markets which are smaller, so a surge in demand into a smaller market tends to really cause a quite a significant appreciation in a short space of time uh, and this is where the danger is because people you know developers might see that and they might see oh there's a lot of demand it's you know prices are going up so we better start building and they all build too much at the same time and then that really causes prices to come down at the end of the cycle and that causes issues with the banking system and so on and when that happens all at once it, you know as you tend to get at the same time it's at the end of the cycle, because everyone's a bit over leveraged, banks have gone too far, uh, and so on. That's when it's sort of all, you know, everyone heads for the exit at the same time, and it creates a real problem. Yeah, yeah. Well, I could have used I could have used your cycle back then because I was way way off, but I'm not. <laughs> but you, but you know, at least you're you're in your own place, and that's done well. So, <laughs> yeah, no, not complaining. And until it's time to move. And and everything's just as expensive, so it's kind of moot. But anyway, that is that is the that's the problem with the states, unfortunately. Yeah, uh, Akil, uh, great to have you on. Really enjoyed the book. Uh, very very rigorous thinking. Interesting sort of behavioral components to the cycle piece. Uh, love your thinking on cycles. Howard Marks thinking on cycles. They've they've certainly informed uh, how I view the world of, of finance. If people want to get the book, tell us the name one more time. Where can we find you? Where can we find your work? Yeah. So the title of the book is The Secret Wealth Advantage, How You Can Profit from the Economy's Hidden Cycle. Um, it's available on website of most major book retailers, so Amazon, Barnes & Noble. I think it's even in a few branches of Barnes & Noble as well, so you might be able to go and browse and, and buy it physically there. I have a book website www.thesecretwealthadvantage.com, which has a bit of information uh, about the book and you can download a few sample chapters. Um, and then my subscription service is property share market economics. That's all one word, .com. Um, and you can get on there and find our free newsletter if you want to understand the cycle a bit better. Of course, you can become a, a, a paying subscriber, but uh, you can certainly get our weekly newsletter and, and get a sense of how things work. Uh, once you've had a chance to read my book. Hey, Akil, thank you again. 
Look forward to hanging in London later this year. Brilliant. I look forward to that too. Thanks for tuning in to Standard Deviations. If you can't wait till next week for more behavioral finance insights, visit www.orion.com. All opinions expressed by Dr. Daniel Crosby and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion and its affiliates, subsidiaries, and employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information the participants consider reliable.